0: Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, with the last of our shows on the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. I'm Ed Crooks. And I'm joined today by two old friends who, like me, have recently returned from the talks and who we spoke to while the negotiations were going on. Amy Harder is the executive editor of Cypher, which is a publication from Breakthrough Energy. Hi, Amy. How are you?
1: I am doing well. Thanks for having me on and good to see you again.
0: Indeed. Yeah. Great to see you. And also we're joined by Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and also a professor at Columbia's Climate School. Hi, Melissa. How are you?
1: Hey,
2: doing well. Still don't know what time zone I'm in, but I think we all are feeling (laughs) that right now. (laughs)
0: Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Which brings me to what I have to start with now, which is thanks for being flexible and an apology very, very naively, I scheduled the recording of this podcast for yesterday, which is the last day of the COP. And we're kind of recording on US time. So that, well, it's bound to be over by then. And so we'll have a conclusion, and we'll be able to discuss it, etc. Of course, that turned out not to be the case. It is very, very often the case that these COP negotiations run past their scheduled end time. And that's exactly what happened in Dubai. And I think I was looking at when they finally agreed things. We're now talking, it's about 7pm Dubai time on the day after the talks were meant to close. And really just in the last few hours, the final statement has been released and so on. So as usual, it's that kind of the pressure of the deadline, pushing people to agree something was very necessary to get some kind of statement agreed. And I guess one of the key things we're going to be talking about is, in terms of what they actually came out with, is it what people wanted is it something that is really going to be significant in terms of changing the world of energy, putting us on a different trajectory for the climate? I suppose the most kind of basic and simple way to think about a COP is success or failure. I've seen a lot of different ideas flying around, some people hailing it as a, as a triumph, other people saying it's a complete disaster and a flop. I suspect probably the truth lies somewhere in the middle, but not necessarily. I don't know. Amy, what do you think? Success or failure?
1: I think I'm surprisingly concluding that this has been a huge success.
0: Wow, a huge success. I, not not just, A yeah, huge okay. success.
1: You know, in in this topic of energy and climate change, where actual change happens very slowly, we keep writing and talking about the same things, don't we, over the course of a year or five years. And so when we have moments like this that are actually significant, I think we should just call them out as being very significant. And- why I think this is a surprisingly big and successful deal is because the term fossil fuels have been mentioned for the first time ever in a COP agreement in an oil state to boot. That is huge. And Sultan Al jabbar the, the COP28 president, got so much criticism for the perceived and perhaps sometimes real conflict of interest, but he delivered. And I think we should just call it what it is. And I've been reading, you know, I've been up since 4 a.m. local time reading the commentary and the outlet and the, the news coverage out there, and of course, getting cypress coverage over the finish line. And one that has struck me is the reaction of Bill McKibben, uh, the famous activist who says, now we will be able to point to this agreement every time there's new fossil fuel." So this is a line in the sand. Uh, and of course, there's people who don't like it, understandably so, and we can get into that. But I think it's a clear success for pretty much everybody.
2: I think I'm with Amy on this one. I mean, when I saw the headlines come out, you know, in between one of those quick naps that I've managed to have since I got back from COP, um, I was like, wow, you did it. Like, that is incredibly impressive. And um, Amy, I, I actually was reading you newsletter that just came out about an hour before we were recording. And I hadn't noticed the, um, I hadn't quite gotten to, I should say, the Guardian article that you guys put in your list of things to read. And I, I, I like the headline, which is just, After 30 years of waiting, COP28 deal addresses the elephant in the room and in writing addresses the elephant in the room. And I think that's right. Like it's one of those We've known this is a sticking point. This comes up time and time again. Y'all remember before Glasgow when President Biden went from, you know, asking for more production to, you know, asking for a bending of the emissions curve. And it was really, really criticized. And people were saying, hey, how can you go from this to that? And for energy wonks and energy nerds, we're like, that's the tension, y'all. Like, that's what we're talking about. Supplying the fuel we need today making sure that we have affordable energy today as we rapidly transition and actually have it in writing on a page um, from a cop in the UAE, I that is a huge lift and I find it incredibly, incredibly impressive. Now, with all that, I don't think to the thing you said, Ed, anyone is going to be, I don't know, cheering in the streets until we hit net zero. I mean, I think there's always going to be criticisms about we're not going fast enough and the science says we aren't, to be clear. But this was a milestone and this was more than I thought going into COP and I was optimistic going into COP. This is more than I thought we would have coming out of it. So I find it really impressive and it makes me more optimistic. Okay, Ed, are you going to add to the optimism blanket or are you you throwing pessimism on this one? Where are you at today?
0: I'm afraid I am going to throw some pessimism on it. It's clear then that it's my role to be the Grinch in this conversation and to be a bit sour about it. I mean, you're right. Okay, let's maybe take a quick step back and think about how we got here. So people who've been listening to the podcasts while the talks have been going on will remember there was this very heated debate about would there be a commitment to phase out fossil fuels? And there was clearly a lot of resistance to that from a lot of fossil fuel producing countries, oil and gas producing countries, certainly probably some coal producing and using countries as well. So that always looked like it was going to be a real stretch. Then there was a lot of talk about, well, what about phase down the use of fossil fuels? And that was something that was much discussed. Turns out we don't have either of those things, actually. It's neither a phase out nor a phase down. And if you look at the statement, so this is the statement that come out of the COP is it's called the global stock take. So this is the kind of a look back at what's happened since Paris and everything that's changed in the world of climate Uh, since the Paris Agreement in 2015, the progress that countries have made towards reducing their emissions, and then sort of draws conclusions from that about the future and says, look, this is what we need to do still to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. And then we just call up the specific language. So as I say, it's not a phase out, it's not a phase down, it says, right, the following thing. The countries have agreed that they should be, and then the language is, transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So as I say, not a phase out or a phase down. And if I'm being cynical on this, I just say, well, literally, they're just talking about what's happening anyway. The world is already transitioning away from fossil fuels. We knew that. That is the course we are on over time, over the course of Decades to come, the world is unquestionably going to move away from fossil fuels. Therefore, all they're really doing is signaling that they are kind of happy with what's going on anyway, and they're not actually signaling a change of direction in the way that they would have done if they'd said phase out or even phase down.
2: I gotta, I gotta push a little bit on it though. Where I will say in the language, a couple of things jump out. So yeah, um, the other day I think we were talking about it with Michael Weber. I said I don't see it being anything but phase down. I didn't see it being phase out. I will say I just transitioning away, it's phased down. I mean, to me, like it's, it's just another way to say that. Um, within it, it includes the words just and equitable. Which was in a really early version of the text and got completely scrapped, and we thought it was just gone, and now it's back. And then also within this, it it specifically calls out this critical decade. And that's something really interesting to me because I've been asked so many times this year, especially after the IEA has come out with their latest outlooks like, what's happening with oil? You know, is it gonna peak this decade, 2035? What are we looking at? Um, And the idea that we need to rapidly transition away this decade in the next. I mean, soon to be six years, (laughs) that's I feel like that is a step change there where it's actually, I don't know, sealing the debate or at least putting the finger on the pulse of the science and saying it's not next decade. This is not a 2035 bending of the curve when it comes to oil and gas and overall fossil fuels. And I guess we could get into that argument because it is a fossil fuels and coal, oil and gas are all in that. I just find it really interesting that it included that bit of language, too. So it puts a timeline on it, a clock.
1: It's also helpful to kind of look at the long arc of these debates. Uh, And so kind of going back to the 1995, uh, and I'm looking again at Bill McKibben's note he sent out today. And, you know, some people in the, the fossil fuel industry would wonder why you're listening to Bill McKibben. I think Bill McKibben has been one of the very most influential people in this debate, for the, the rallying cries he has helped encourage in the environmental space. So with that said, looking at what he has written here, he talks about the 1995 statement that said, the balance of evidence suggests that there is a discernible human influence on global climate. And then, which is a relatively bland sentence, but you have to remember we're getting the consensus of essentially the entire world. And then the next key sentence came in the Paris Climate Agreement, where basically consensus was had to get um, to to limit temperature rise uh, well below two degrees Celsius. That also seems, especially now in the rearview mirror, an extremely obvious thing to say. And now we're this new sentence, the one that you said a couple of minutes ago, Ed, about um away a from fossil fuels, is the next big leg of the stool and line in the sand for the the world to not to to, to move forward from. And so I think. Those three benchmarks over the last three decades is really significant, even if in the moment it's, to your point, Ed, yeah, this is already happening, but this is going to set a trajectory for so many things going forward in a way that it's probably hard to tell now. But looking at the Paris Climate Agreement and the impact that has had, it's been huge. We've saved and shaved, I don't know, half a degree or more of warming because of it. It's not enough, but it's still a lot more than what could have happened. And can I add one quick thing in here just to say for those who are reading through the text, um, because you were reading from, what
2: is it, 28D, Ed, and 28B still calls out for accelerated efforts to phase down unabated coal power. So just as another one related to all of this, it's not just about oil or gas, it's coal as well.
0: Okay, so that's a really good point then. And this is my second line of defense, if you like, in my uh, campaign to pick holes in this, which is okay even if you're right, accepting your point that it's a really significant development to have got the transition away from fossil fuels onto the agenda formally and to be agreed by the entire world as it has been, what does this actually change in terms of real decisions being made, in terms of national government policies, investment decisions being made of the private sector, and so on? So your your coal one's a great example, right? So... Uh, That was, I think, uh, the move away from unabated coal was first agreed at COP26 in 2021. As of where we are right now, it looks pretty clear that 2023 will be a record year for global coal consumption. So it's certainly, I mean, if that COP26 decision is having an effect, it hasn't really had one yet, it wouldn't seem. So what does that change then? I mean, as you were saying, Amy, I thought it was a good point where you said, you know, it's going to be hard to tell initially exactly how a COP decision, this COP28 decision kind of percolates through the world and does really change things in the energy system. But that said, where would you look for evidence? What would you want to look at to say, okay, these are things that are really happening now that are different, that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had this agreement of COP28?
1: I think I'd answer that in two ways. One is to go back to what I said about uh, what Bill McKibben is saying in his newsletter. This is going to be cited in so many protests, um, maybe perhaps even lawsuits. This will be, as some people have said, you know, the beginning of the end for the fossil fuel industry. I, you know, without an, an additional breath, I think it's also important to point out that we are going to see record consumption of fossil fuels. And so Again, it, if we could fast forward 100 years, I, I would butt $100 that this is going to be a, a change in history. We just can't see it. And we might not see it for another 10 years. But I think, you know, and, and again, another example of that with the Paris deal, one thing that I was struck by, and obviously I'm biased writing for and leading a climate tech uh, outlet, but the, the climate tech community was in Dubai in a way it has never been before entrepreneurs and climate tech investors were there. And it was a trade show to some. And some people criticize that. But I think that's ultimately a good sign. And you would not have seen that in Dubai if Paris hadn't started the wheels turning towards solutions. So I think Paris helped jolt a clean energy industry in a way that Clean Tech 1.0 in the early 2000s totally failed at. And I think this deal today, ironically, despite being led by the UAE, will begin in the next 10 years or so, the beginning of the end for fossil fuels.
0: Yeah, I do think that's absolutely right. And as you say, this is something we were talking about in the past days when we were at the COP, that sort of whole trade show aspect of it, I think it's really important and actually very positive. And you'll see a lot of complaints and people saying... Well, you know, think about all the greenhouse gas emissions emitted and all the people flying to be there and think about all the energy consumed in putting the share one and so on, all which is true. And that's you know, undoubtedly the case that minimizing that footprint as far as is possible would be a good thing to do. But that said, getting all these people together to talk and think about climate and to do deals and to mobilize capital and to commit to, again, real world decisions that actually change things and that reduce emissions, that's a very valuable thing. And arguably, as we were saying the other day, you could say it's even more valuable than the specific details of the wording of the agreement that the government's come out with.
1: Yeah, so I think every
2: year when we've talked about has COP been a success, Ed, or is COP poised to be a success or something like that, I mean, I might just start actually quoting Morgan Bazilian from the other day when we were talking, where it's like you got to trust the process and the process is important, the process of bringing people together and forcing these conversations onto the table, forcing our attention to them, these urgent issues, is important, and it sets these things that I describe in my climate mitigation class as like a global peer pressure exercise. Because you know, this is just a saying we're all going to agree to intentions, um, but from now on, to Amy's point, absolutely agree that this phrasing, these words, are going to be quoted everywhere, and they're going to be quoted when when folks ask me. You know, how do I think about my life or my business or my policy being aligned with the different agreements coming out of COP? What does that look like? Well, it's saying, well, you know, if you look at this declaration, it says we are transitioning away from fossil fuels. It says that in black and white, that is happening. And we're doing it this decade. So whatever you're doing right now, this decade, you need to be thinking about any investment decision you're making, any choice you're making. If that is your goal, to be aligned with these things and be aligned with that science, it's in black and white in words. And that's that's important. And I'm sure it's going to be in my syllabus for next year uh, when I teach mitigation again.
0: Yeah, that is a great point. And actually, just going back to what you were saying, Amy, about when you look at the way the world has changed since 1995, that has been absolutely enormous. And even if at any one particular COP, you might not say, it's made a huge difference the cumulative effect of COP after COP after COP, year after year, has been massive. And I mean, I go to your um, uh, your backhoe Bill Gates's line, which I do think is a really good one, about everyone overestimates what they can do in a year but underestimates what they can do in 10 years. That, if you think about almost three 10-year periods since 1995, that has made a colossal difference to the world. And certainly COP28... Keeps us moving in that same direction.
1: Yeah, but I would even push back and say this cop, just like the Paris cop, have made big differences. And I think this one will. And, you know, something to me that some may grumble at, or maybe I've drank the Kool Aid, or maybe I've just been up for too long already on this day. But to me, putting myself in the shoes of Saudi Arabia, this would be perhaps terrifying to have agreed to this. This is essentially conceding to everybody that this is the end of their main industry. And I think that's significant that they have agreed to that. And sure, there's lots of caveats, including one that I think is important to mention, calling you know for transitional fuels, which is, I think, a subtle call out to natural gas, which in some parts of Africa, for example, we will need natural gas. And I think that's important to call out. But nonetheless, the big picture is even Saudi Arabia has agreed to this. And I would be interested. Maybe it's out, and I haven't seen it yet. But OPEC's response to this, um, because OPEC is even somehow even more conservative than the individual governments. But it, I think that's significant, and I I think we should just call this a, a big moment. We don't get big moments like this in energy and climate very often. So let's so let's celebrate it as as a big crystal moment.
0: I'm feeling that bad now about being the Grinch. <laughs> that's <bad. laughs> that's- Yes. I, I I don't want to take any, away anyone's big moment.
2: No, but Ed, I think you're you're voicing what a lot of people feel. And I will say I'm overwhelmingly optimistic and positive about it. That does not mean I don't have some of the same things you're saying going on in my head. It's just on balance. I'm in a very optimistic place and I, and I'm I guess closer to where Amy is and wanting to acknowledge the significance of this. So you're voicing a lot of concerns that people have out there and it's very it's legitimate. I don't disagree with it per se. I just on balance have a different perspective. One thing that I will say, I do think this changes every year in my classes. I ask, you know, we define what net zero means for students who, you know, they haven't done that. And so we think about absolute versus zero versus net zero and what that means for different fuels And I think I've talked to you, at least offline, we talked about how like last year in my class, a lot of people were saying, you know, getting to Paris, getting to net zero means transitioning completely away from fossil fuels. So we can still have emissions from like industry and chemical processes, but we're not going to have emissions from the combustion of fossil fuels anymore in a net zero world. This year, it was a very different balance. I wonder how much of that had to do with the type of geographic representation I have in my class and also um, I know I mused out loud to you the other day about I wonder how much it has to do with where the cop was this year and like how the conversations were going and how again we were addressing an elephant in the room, like a really big elephant. And so when it comes to all these things, I wonder where that that vote is gonna be and kind of the show of hands for my students next year when we talk about what net zero means and the different fuels and their potential pathways. And um, I'm gonna put a pin in the natural gas stuff because oh goodness, that's a rabbit hole. I really wanna go down. But I know we have a lot to cover. So I'm gonna Leave that one for the moment. But it's an important one to flag because it's fossil fuels. It's not there's there's a lot of stuff there. Okay, I am promising I'm going to leave it. <laughs> I'm going to leave it. It,
0: it. it is a very important one, and it's a subject we've obviously discussed on the show in the past. We're definitely going to be coming back to it again in the new year, because as you say, there's all kinds of interesting issues there that we need to explore further. Sorry, Amy, you wanted to say something else.
1: Two things. Uh, yes, I would love to, maybe we can uh, regroup in the beginning of the year and do a deep dive on natural gas, because I, I would love to join that conversation. Um, but secondly, just to provide a temper to to my comments. First of all, I'm seeing this as a big moment. I'm seeing that from a dispassionate way, right? That this is a big moment, even if you don't think it's good enough, or you're secretly terrified because you're a fossil fuel producing country. But this is a big moment, whether you like it or not. Now, my my caveat there is the, and we've seen some critical comments coming from representatives of low-lying nations uh, who won't exist in the next couple of decades. Uh, and I think that's in- incredibly important to emphasize that they rightfully so still don't think we're moving fast enough. And we are not moving fast enough. But in the context of the world that we live in, this was a surprising deal uh, in an oil state. And I think that's important to emphasize. My la- last comment is just that uh, I one of the comments I made before COP was, for decades... COP had been fighting climate change with the oil industry on the outside. And we saw how that worked and it wasn't great. This time, the COP went inside the beast, so to speak, if I'm going to you know, put on the devil's advocate hat. And change has occurred from within the oil industry. And one could argue that this is just a manifestation of the time. And this would have happened if COP had been held in Bonn or wherever else. But I think, you have to think that UAE had an influence getting Saudi Arabia and others on board. And so I think this is going to be, whether you like it or not, a testament to engaging with the oil and gas industry instead of trying to sue them or protest them out of business.
0: Yeah. And for instance, the chief executive of ExxonMobil going to a cop for the first time. And regardless of any of the details about what he said or what was said to him, just still the symbolism of that, of by far the biggest U.S. oil and gas company, being represented in person by its top executive at a COP. That's very significant, I think.
1: Yeah. And if you told
2: me that that headline was going to come out 15 years ago and asked me to bet on it, I would not have put much money against it just because that's not where things were. That's not where the conversation was. And it was very much a different camps and some participating and some not and still debating science and you know, I know I say that a lot, but it is something that just in my career, I have felt the shift. I think we all have. And it's significant. And this, I feel like we're going to look back on and see it as another shift because it does put words to the tension we've felt for years. And it's brought a lot more people into the conversation. Like OPEC was at COP. Like they were presenting on different scenarios and different work. And, you know, I, um, I noticed there were, you know, reports that were being messed around about how they're looking through things. And it's one of those, you know, you can, if there's some who criticize it, there's some who don't. But I'll say for me to have an effective dialogue and effectively transition, you can't have camps of folks who are just talking to each other. You can't have just a series of echo chambers. And if you want real fast progress. And so bringing everyone into the same conversation with the goal of the COP being climate mitigation, climate adaptation. Um, I do want to pick up on one thread when it comes to the small island states. Um, I am still hugely positive overall when it comes to loss and damage fund and the fact that we have one and it has some money in it. But that was a negative space uh, from a number of colleagues I spoke to who work with small island states or live in small island states where they were saying, this is so far from being enough. So how do we accelerate that? Because there's many be parts of the world that even if slash when we bend the curve as soon as possible, etc, etc, doesn't undo the damage that's already been done. And for some countries, that's a really stark reality to be facing.
0: Something else you were saying earlier, Melissa, I just wanted to jump back to, which was, you said, in terms of the language of the final statement, it was very significant that the words just and equitable were there in terms of the transition away from fossil fuels. Why is that significant, do you think?
2: I think it puts a point on how are we doing this transition, not just what is the transition and what are we trying to do with the emissions, but what does it mean? And it acknowledges communities is how I view it when I read it, at least. And I'm curious how different people read that, actually, when they read equitable and Just, what does that mean? But it's the idea of we acknowledge the risks and also the opportunities and we think consciously and proactively about how we provide access to opportunities. So when you talk about justice and you talk about what has happened in history to take us where we are today. And I know this has come up in so many different forms throughout discussions, not the least of which is when we talk about the historic emissions from the continent of Africa and then the idea of will they have access to natural gas? Again, I'm putting a pin in that one, but good night. That is a huge topic. So the justice piece of it, but also the equitable piece of it, acknowledging that they're our effects from this transition. It's not all rosy and perfect and idyllic and utopia as we make this transition. Now we're doing it for a whole variety of reasons. And the not the least of which is if we don't, that future is a lot more costly and a lot worse than the one that we look at when we go to net zero. But I think it is simply important um, to acknowledge the equity and justice in that transition. It's not a Transition that does not consider people. People are at the heart of this. Um, it's about human health and the environment, all of it together. And of course, those two things are intertwined. So that's part of why I brought it up. But we could honestly talk for hours on this topic, Ed, because I have a lot of thoughts.
0: We certainly could. And I think, though, I do think this is another area where the language is one thing and the reality of what impact it has can be another. And One of the areas I think a lot of people are pointing to as having been not successful at this COP is climate finance. And it wasn't necessarily going to be a huge COP for climate finance. There's a lot of pressure now on next year's COP, COP29, which I think is going to be in Azerbaijan. That's really meant to be uh, concluding progress towards this new mechanism, the new collective quantified goal for climate finance, which is the thing which is meant to replace this 100 billion a year that was supposed to be paid by rich countries to low and middle income countries, which doesn't seem to have happened for most years. It may have happened this year. We don't quite know. The data isn't great. But anyway, there was some talk about whether there would be progress on that at COP28. It hasn't really happened. So to your point, if you're thinking about this principle of just and equitable transition being really important, clearly one of the ways you make it just and equitable is by richer countries supporting poorer countries and helping them make the transition away from fossil fuels at points where often there's a cost to doing so and they haven't really made any progress, have they, in uh, heading towards that and showing how they would finance that at this COP?
1: Yeah, You know, the finance topic is, is so extremely difficult and it's really complicated as well, which is why, Cypher, we did a whole six-part series, which I'd be happy to share with your listeners. One of the biggest problems here, which is a problem we face in the whole climate uh, problem, generally speaking, is that no matter how much we do, it is never enough. And not only that, but with a lot of things with climate change, which is uh, makes climate change a uniquely challenging problem compared to others, the more we wait, the ho- the bigger the problem becomes. So when in 2009, rich countries agreed to fund $100 billion a year by 2020 to poorer countries, that was what we all thought we needed in 2009. Well, fast forward 15 years. And that's woefully under accounting what we need. And I, I, I think the the data does show that rich countries did belatedly meet that goal this year. But now the the, the numbers that people say we need for to help poor countries both adapt to a warming world and adopt technologies to uh, not be dependent on fossil fuels, it's like a trillion dollars a year. It's how, it's, it boggles the mind how much money they need. And so I definitely think and hope that since this COP has sort of cleared the deck and put a stake in the ground on fossil fuels, that the next COP can really dig into these details and put more money toward this challenge. Now, I will say, not to continue to be Pollyannish about this, but the first day of COP, which seems like light years ago, did have a surprise deal on yes, 15 years, uh, did have a surprise deal on loss and damage. That fund is created. It's going to be run out of uh, the World Bank for the time being. That's significant. Definitely not enough money. But I think that surprised us all. And, you know, I'm so rarely surprised after doing this for 15 years that I'm rejoicing in the fact that I'm surprised. Yeah, and along
2: those lines, I will say when loss and damage first came out, it was like, yeah, we're going to figure that out. And it was like, okay, oh, and it was wondering, like, okay, it was great to have that statement because it was acknowledging the problem, acknowledging we need a solution. And I was kind of wondering at the time, how long was it going to take to figure out what the what on earth that looks like? Hey, guess what? We have something that is very underfunded, but it is it is a functioning loss and damage fund. How interesting is that? And how huge is that? Now, I've been reading up a bunch, and I'm going to be discussing this with my finance colleagues. Uh, in particular, I, I have a list of questions for Gautam Jane and Luisa Palacios in my office because uh, they had our clean energy finance group. But I was reading about, have you guys been following this, the new collective quantified goal, NCQD, which is a really rough acronym. But okay, it's, it's this idea, honestly, I'll just boil it down into what I take away from it. So I read through it as an engineer and policy person who understands finance, but is just grateful to have finance colleagues to provide all the nitty gritty details. It feels when I'm reading about that like it did when I was reading about loss and damages. And there was an agreement coming out of this COP saying we're going to have some kind of draft on how this is going to work for the next COP, not for a COP in the future, but for the next one. And that to me is interesting because I feel like with loss and damage, we still have more to go. There's still a lot more to go to get a sufficient funding in there and then also to figure out distribution and all that. But this seems significant to me and it feels like loss and damage, but also with a more strict timeline about when we're going to figure something out in a draft agreement. So they've basically committed to having it be on the table. Does it feel like that to y'all? Have y'all been following this at all? Because it's, it's a rabbit hole that I've been spending a lot of time on in the last few days.
0: Yeah, I've been following it a bit, and it was quite under the radar, though, in Dubai, wasn't it? It wasn't something that was really very prominent. As you say, definitely one to watch, though, and clearly in a year's time in Azerbaijan, that's going to be very, very important, that'll be absolutely front and centre for people. And so, again, one of the things that people often say, it's a truism, but it's a, it's a cliché, because it's true, is that you can't initially tell the success of a COP, the day it concludes or the day after, you're going to have to wait a good while and see over the months and years to come. And only with hindsight will you be able to look back and say, yeah, actually, that has been really effective. And something like that, climate finance seems a classic example of that, Whereas you say, if if there is a good outcome in a year's time, maybe the foundations for that were laid there in Dubai.
1: I think just one point that I think is worth emphasizing in this climate debate generally is that sometimes the impact isn't that things are good. It's that things are less bad. And that is not a great thing in humanity when we like good things. But I think this COP is going to make things less bad. Will they still be bad based upon a fictional world where we didn't have global warming? Yes. But things this is going to be less bad. And same thing with finance, even though we have a long way to go.
0: One other bit of bad news I wanted to raise, again, just to kind of in my mission to be relentlessly negative in this conversation, is carbon markets, where, again, as you say, loss and damage, the idea was that a framework needed to be agreed, and it was agreed in carbon markets, international trading of carbon credits, ways to essentially get um, financing from richer countries for decarbonization projects in poorer countries and to kind of seek out around the world where the lowest cost options for decarbonization are. The hope was that a framework for that could be agreed in Dubai. Didn't happen. Apparently, things sort of basically completely collapsed there. Carbon markets had been looking for a big leap forward as a result of what's called Article 6.4 of Paris, the sort of framework attached to that to implement that being agreed. Hasn't happened. So, again, and things that have clearly not been a success here. That's one of them.
1: Yes, definitely. And that, I think, is a clear area that is extremely important. And there's been a lot of criticisms, a lot of it warranted, on how the markets are working there. And so I think, hopefully, with this, the big elephant in the room, as Melissa said earlier, and that The Guardian and others have used as a a good metaphor here, now that the elephant in the room has been named, and put down in black and white ink, uh, hopefully these other thornier issues can get some attention in future COPs. And I will say just in the
2: past 24 hours, I,
1: no joke, I've gotten three invitations to speak at some
2: very high level, um, senior level discussions about how we make carbon markets work. And so I think we're all feeling this, like what you just brought up. Like I, I was looking at in my inbox and it's, yeah, it's coming in already. So
0: Clearly, a lot more work to be done there, definitely. I think that would be the message. And yeah, I can see why people want to talk to you about that. So look, Amy, I know you have to run, so we should um, wrap it up pretty soon. But I wanted to leave with a thought about, well, I want to do free electrons in a moment because I think we should have some free electrons from the COP. But before we do, I wanted to leave with a kind of a stand back question, which is something I asked earlier in the COP last week, which is when you look at all this, as you take a step back and think about the long-term picture and as the dust now clears on the cop and they're clearing away, all the uh, negotiators have gone home, they're clearing away all the stands and the pavilions. I think it's the um, Dubai Winter Festival has moved into that space now, um, which is where they all had to get going. So look out for that uh, opening on Friday. When you take that step back, how has it left you feeling about what the world is doing in terms of addressing climate change and whether we're really getting to grips with the problem and making the kind of difference we need to make. From what you've both been saying, in terms of your general overview of the event as a success, I guess you're going to be feeling more positive. Is that for Amy, what do you think?
1: Yeah, and I would sum it up this way. Definitely more positive for two reasons. One, the one we've been talking about most of the time, which is that fossil fuels have been mentioned for the first time ever, and there's a clear trajectory toward transitioning away from them. At the same time, the fact that the climate tech community showed up with such force at this COP is a sign that not only are we at the very beginning of transitioning away from fossil fuels, but that the technologies that will replace them in the next century are starting to to show up as well and we need both sides of that equation uh ready to go.
0: Melissa, what about you?
2: I I just echo what Amy said. Like I'm I mean optimistic and when I look at how the tech group came out I keep going back to Julio Friedman um, and his whole like put me in coach I'm ready to go. Oh, that's a great place to be when you got lots of people who are ready and are like I'm ready. Let's go. Let's get this stuff installed. Let's get this steel in the ground. Let's bend this curve and I remember having a conversation with a former mentor of mine who's an energy company CEO back in the day. Um, And he said that part of his definition of sustainable and his entire business was about renewables and energy storage before they were cool or cost effective in the way that they are today. We said sustainable means there's a pathway for me to make money in my company. And at that time, and this was like 2000, oh gosh, eight, nine he had already found ways to do that, and now I look at where we are, and I look at all these companies, and I'm like, all right, yeah, put me in, coach. I'm ready to go. And that's fantastic.
0: So this has been great. It's been great talking to you. You very much cheered me up, I think I would say. I'm certainly feeling a lot Good. less cynical than I was at the <laughs> beginning of the conversation. So thank you very much for that. Just before we go, um, your COP28 free electrons, personal things that you may have spotted or thought about during the talks. Amy, what's yours?
1: Well, As all of us were doing, you know, logging lots and lots of miles across the Expo City outside of Dubai, which is fun fact, an area larger than Central Park. So I definitely wore white sneakers pretty much the whole time. Um, But like many people, I could barely scratch the surface of what I saw. And so two days in a row, I ended up eating lunch at this at the plant-based food pavilion, which is right near sort of the main entrance in the media center. And I chose this one place that had cold noodle salad and it was really tasty. And the line was short. And the lady who took my order two days in a row remembered me both remembered me the second day. And I just thought that was really thoughtful. And so not to be cheesy, but I think, you know, just a huge thank you to the huge amount of people that put on COP. Um, It was a huge undertaking. It was extremely well run compared to past ones. And the food was really good. Uh, And I thought it was really nice that the lady remembered me. And it's a small thing. And there was shaded spots to eat, and anyway, so that was a fond memory I had.
0: Yeah, no, you're certainly. Um, I feel about feel you on the shoes. I wish I'd been better shod, but as you say, just in terms of the organisation, it was very, very impressive, it was extremely well run, and that was that was something which really jumped out at me, Melissa.
2: I was smiling when Amy said that because it was outside the media centre too, and in, in B1 though, in the air conditioned building, and uh, not the plant based food ones, but the coffee carts. There were these two people who, man, they knew my they knew how much tea I drink in a day, um, and they were so kind. And it only took me showing up a few times, and they were just like, "Hey, you're getting this, right?" And I was like, "Yes, I am." And it just, I'm that attention and care. Like, I don't think we can overstate like how much that actually affects the overall mood of things when you've got that level of care and attention being placed to the things that allow us to have these conversations and enable us to be effective in those conversations. Um, But my free election for today, I've had a lot of feedback um, about the comments I made the other day, Ed, about gender um, and the things that came up in the Women Leading on Climate panel. Uh, I don't speak about that stuff that much, um, not because it's not incredibly important. We just, you know, go down different paths in conversations. But I got asked a couple of questions and I looked up some stats to um, follow up. So my quick free electron is following. I made the comment about how the number of women in certain circles in these negotiations was quite small and also the gender parity um, concept when it comes to negotiators. So overall, um, when it comes to the World Climate Action Summit, specifically of the 140 world leaders that were scheduled to speak, 15 of them, so just over 10% were women. So I was talking small I was talking about just over 10%. And then when it comes to negotiators, if you look at the delegations at COP, the number is that it was that I have is that it was 62% male and 38% female. And so when I was referencing the gender parity goals and how progress has been made, but you know, we're we're not not at parity. That's where that's where I was talking about. So the very small was the 10%-ish number and the not quite parity was the second one. So just wanted to flag those numbers.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating, and actually, as you say, that kind of broader issue of gender and climate and energy is a really interesting, really important topic. I think that'd be a great subject for a show in the new year. That's we should talk about that because I think I think I think that's a really good subject to dig into. A Whole load of uh, issues there worth talking about. Yeah. So mine, uh, my free electron is much less serious than that, but it's something. Um, I wanted to flag up. It's, you know, the cute face of the cop. I don't know if you've seen, but there were lots of cats wandering around. the I site did. Presumably for pest control did. purposes. Yeah. The cop cats. <laughs> it's fantastic. Great. So which, the cop cats, which were they're wonderful, lovely. which I never saw in person, <gasps> disappointingly. Oh. I'm a bit of a uh, cat enthusiast. But you can check out the pictures in full. There's, you know, X twitter you know, platform formerly known as Twitter has a great account called Cats of COP28. So that, you know, it always used to be a joke when I was a journalist that Cats in the news was the kind of the lowest common denominator of coverage. But I think it's an important part of the mix. It's an important part of the overall picture. So do check that out. As I say, Cats of COP28.
2: So, Ed, I... <laughs> To future cop presidents all over the world. Uh, here's my dream. My list for, what is it? All right, we're putting together a list for Santa Claus right now in many, many households around the world. Um, so, on my list is that we have a cop where you have like a place you can go to, like, I don't know, hang out with some puppies and a cat or two, you know, like maybe some bunnies. <laughs> I just, I, come on, they bring joy. <laughs> like, they bring joy, but it's yeah, got to be an area because yeah. I recognize some people are allergic. It doesn't bring them joy, but I I think yeah. it would help negotiations.
1: Yeah, if we could very
0: when the negotiations <laughs> get Guys, intense. Guys, I am
1: extremely disappointed. I missed the cats you, next year. Hopefully yeah, Azerbaijan a, has cats. It's That'd be great.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This this is this this is the really important message for Azerbaijan. <laughs> is make make sure you get the cats All right. right. Indeed. Well again, it's just it's very nice to be ending with this upbeat mood. I think the energy clearly here in this conversation is very positive. So great talking to you both, but we do unfortunately have to leave it there. Uh many thanks to you, Amy.
1: You're very welcome. This was a lot of fun.
0: Many thanks, Melissa.
1: Thanks, Ed. Um, Amy, Ed, always great to see you all.
0: I definitely hope to see you both at COP29 with cats and dogs and whatever else may be there, and certainly before it then in the new year as well. Uh, And of course, above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do keep your feedback coming. We've had lots of comments about our coverage of COP28, um, both positive and negative. Uh, Always interesting to hear what you think. Apologies if I haven't replied to anyone. I will try and get back to you over the next few days because, uh, as I've said often in the past, I do very much value your feedback. Um, So as I say, keep those comments coming. And we'll be back next week when we will be doing our review of the year in energy. So until then, goodbye.